Well, good morning again, IBC family. Before I jump into our text and explanation of the text, I want to give a little sidebar uh, explanation as to what I've been doing the last few weeks. Um, Some people have asked me how my vacation was, and uh, I was not on vacation. (laughs) I just wasn't preaching. Um, But what I've actually been working on uh, for actually a number of years, but this year has been kind of moving into a different or a final phase of my doctorate of ministry, and so I'm working on a dissertation right now. And, uh, and so in my vacation, I was actually doing a lot of writing uh, in the midst of all the other ministry responsibilities. And so uh, it's been going well. I'm actually, I'm very much enjoying the process. Uh, it definitely takes a lot of mind and mental uh, work to articulate thoughts and re-articulate thoughts and, and to write a few hundred pages of of a paper. So um, it'll be the longest paper I've ever written, and hopefully the only longest paper I've ever written is like this. So, but it's been a great process, and so I definitely covet your prayers in this. I'll be having a couple more blocks this year because, Lord willing, my intent is to uh, finish it and submit it this year so as they tear it up and spit it back to me, I can do some necessary edits and graduate from uh, in the spring. So that's my. Lord willing, that's my goal, and uh, who, you know, hey, I'll be 41 and finally graduating school, so that'll be very, really awesome, so um, I really appreciate Pastor Mike and Pastor Tom being able, the fact that we even have a team of pastors to, to give me this opportunity is incredible. Uh, 85% of people do not finish their doctorate of ministry because of the dissertation, and so I'm not necessarily trying to avoid being that statistic, but I am, I really desire to finish. Uh, the, the church elders, the leadership has entrusted me with this responsibility, and I want to finish uh, on, a good, in a good, on a good note. And so um, I'm excited for that, and I love the fact that we have a team of pastors that actually gives me a chance to actually sit down and write, and to think, and to read, and to pray. And so anyways, I'm very thankful for them. Last week, Pastor Tom actually went through the first half of Matthew chapter 6, and in the first half of Matthew 6, we see that Jesus is exposing our motivations. He's not saying what we're doing is wrong, he's saying sometimes why we do what we do is wrong. In other words, he says when you, when you fast, or when you give, and when you pray, and when you fast, Don't do it in this way, but instead do it in another way. In other words, don't do it for self-serving reasons, but instead doing it for purposes that are all about God and worshiping God. So why you do what you do matters, in other words. But what I love about the the specific chunk in this first half of Matthew chapter 6 is that Jesus not only uh, exposes our potential uh, fleshly motives... But he also teaches us in the most practical of ways, this is how you pray. You know, speaking of baby dedications, as a parent, and you guys can all relate if you have kids or have had kids, kids do not just do things as if it's just common sense. You have to teach them. You can't just say, go put your shoes on, because they're always wrong. 90% of the time, they're always the opposite. I don't understand why statistically it works out that way, but 90% of the time, the shoes are going the other way. 
Or you can't assume that when you say, go wash your hands after you go potty, that they're actually going to do a thorough job, you know, or even turn off the water when they're done. You can't assume that when you say, go brush your teeth, that they're actually going to take the time and, and look at every tooth and make sure that chunks of dinner are out. They know these things, they, they, they do these things because they are learned activities. They are learned processes, and we have to teach them the right way. In other words, no doubt, you've probably said it in this way, this is how you do it. And you do it five times this way, maybe, and, okay, you dentist in the room, maybe ten times this way, ten times that way, two whole minutes, right? As if anybody ever does it, Two minutes. This is how you wash your hands. In fact, I love it. When Katie learned about germs, she spends minutes washing her hands. Grandma did this little hygiene kind of course, what she was doing in Africa, and she's like, there's germs and they can make you sick and you can't even see them? And so she's just like lathering and washing. I mean, I was like, wow, I could lick those hands and not be, not be nervous. But she learned how to do them. And I think as it relates to our Christian life, as it relates to how we, how, as disciples of Jesus, we also have to learn how to worship. We learn how to pursue God. It's not intuitive necessarily, but we learn how to properly do things, not just with the right motives, but even the way in which we do them. Specifically in our text here this morning, we learn how to pray. Now, before I jump into our specific text, I just want to kind of give a quick overview of prayer because uh, not be for the sake of explaining why prayer is important necessarily, though that is, would be a great topic to, to preach on. If you want to uh, think about the spiritual disciplines and why they are important for a healthy disciple, you can look back next or last fall when we did the spiritual CrossFit. We went through all the spiritual disciplines and how they uh, benefit our lives and how they help us pursue Christ more fully. But when we think about prayer in general, perhaps all of us, at least to some degree, could, could admit that there is room for improvement. Perhaps all of us could acknowledge that, you know what, I'm not fully content with my prayer life. In fact, maybe some of us would say, I don't even have much of a prayer life. But when you think about why we pray, when you think about the invitation, the really the, the godly, the divine invitation that God gives us to commune with him, when you think about why we do this, please understand that we are doing this for the purpose of fostering a, a closer, a deeper intimacy with God. How well do you think you're going to know your spouse or even a friend if you never talk or text or Snapchat or whatever you do? You have to communicate. Relationship requires communication. And so God gives us this invitation, this divine invitation. The creator of the universe says, I want to have a relationship with you. Not that you just know that I'm created you, but I want to know you and I want you to know me. I want to disclose myself to you and I want you to know me more fully each and every day. And the way in which we get to know God more fully is yes, through his word, but we get to talk with him through the process, through the, through the practice of prayer. 
Altmuller says it this way in his book, Prayer That Turns the World Upside Down. He says this, when you pray, you convey your theological system. When you pray, you are actually conveying, you're communicating what you believe about God. In fact, you also communicate what you think about God when you don't pray. So if you want to know what someone thinks about God, or if you want to know what they believe about God, if you want to know what their convictions and priorities and assumptions and, and, and expectations are in life, just listen to the way they pray. Another aspect or thing that you could reflect on a little bit later is that when we think about the purpose of prayer, prayer shows our dependence on God. Dependent people are prayerful people. Conversely, prayerless people are independent people. People that depend upon themselves instead of God. In fact, as I won't go into grave detail here, but as we can quickly conclude, a healthy disciple of Jesus is one whose life is marked by a pattern, a regular and con- or consistent pattern of prayer, of communing with God, of talking with God, of bringing our request before God. But it still some- somewhat begs the question, how do we pray rightly? How are we called to pray properly? What's the right way, so to speak, to wash our hands or to pray to God? Now, I just want to qualify what I'm about to say here because every clause, every phrase in this passage could be a sermon in and of itself. And so I don't have the opportunity or the time right now. We could do a whole series on this, and maybe we will later. But, we could, but I'm just going to quickly or very briefly explain what Jesus is talking about so that it might, well, in a twofold way, inform your own prayer life, but so that you can approach God in a proper manner. So we see that Jesus says, and in, in Luke's account, the disciples are saying, Lord, teach us how to pray. And so Jesus says this, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We'll stop right there just for a second. Proper prayer, and if you're looking in your notes, you can follow along. Proper prayer begins with God, not you. Praying rightly means that you begin with God and not you. More specifically, you are acknowledging who God is and therefore, as a result, submitting to his will. I'm not sure what your prayer life may look like on a regular basis, but even as I was studying this past week and even feeling a sense of conviction in my own prayer life this past week, One thing I've been able to observe, even in my own life, is that my prayer oftentimes quickly jumps to my grocery list of what I want God to do for me. 
In other words, that, my, my response to pray is oftentimes I'm recognizing certain needs or desires or wants in my own life, and as a result, I go, well, I should pray about it. And therefore, I go, God, here's what I want. Here's what I, I know you can do, and I'm asking you, will you do it? Now, on one hand, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I'm not saying at all for a moment that we shouldn't bring everything to God in prayer. After all, Paul says in Philippians 4, 6, bring everything to God in prayer. In fact, we even see in Luke chapter 18 that Jesus teaches the parable of the persistent widow. And so not only are we supposed to bring everything to God in prayer, but we can ask over and over and over and over and over again, and God does not tire of our asking. Isn't that awesome? We as parents, we get exhausted. God is never exhausted. We get annoyed. God is not annoyed. But even though we are called to bring everything to God in prayer, and even though we are called to to be persistent in our prayer, we also see in other parts of Scripture, for example, in James chapter 4, where James says, you have not because you ask not, and you do not receive when you ask because you ask wrongly. You ask with self-serving desires, So as Scripture interprets Scripture, what we see is that God isn't against us asking for anything, but he does care about why we ask him. He does care about our motivations in our asking. And what we see here in the the Lord's Prayer, or better described as the Disciples' Prayer, we see that our motivations and our requests are radically influenced when we first begin with God and not ourselves. In other words, before we get to our wish list or our grocery list of what we expect or want God to do, it's imperative that you and I first begin with God, acknowledging who he is and a submission to his will because then we know how to ask rightly. You have, you have no doubt made me memorized Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. We love that verse. Verse 5 even goes on to say, commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. More often, not necessarily for everybody, but it's possible that the part you walk away with is God is going to give me the desires of my heart. And it's possible that he may. But what this that verse emphasizes is that we first delight ourselves in the Lord and then he gives us the desires of our heart. Because as we delight ourselves in the Lord, guess what we are actually doing? Guess what's going on in our heart by delighting in God? When you delight in God, therefore you are aligning your purposes and your values and your perspective and your whole life to God's purposes and values. In other words, your desires will never contradict the desires of God because you delight in what he delights in. You delight in what is important to him. And therefore, God says, I'll give you whatever you ask because whatever you ask is going to be consistent with my nature. It's going to be consistent with who I am because you're not going to ask anything that is contrary to who I am. 
So Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. There are many pictures or illustrations or descriptions that we get of God. One of the ways in which we relate to God is as Father. Not just God, capital G, but Father. I think this is very significant in this sense that the fact that God, that Jesus encourages us to pray to our Father. It only, not only depicts who he is, but it radically influences how we think about God. It, it influences how we relate to God. If we relate to God as some distant supreme being who's in the sky, who created everything and wants nothing to do with us, that would change the quality of relationship that we have. But the very fact that God wants to be understood as Father, there's a sense of Family. There's a sense of, uh, of intimacy that is communicated by the very label of Father. As Jesus even says elsewhere, Abba Daddy. There's a closeness, there's an invitation when we know that God is our Father. Not only is he our Father, but he is our Father. He's not just my Father. And you might think I'm reading too much into this, but I don't think I am. When you look at the entire prayer that Jesus teaches his, his disciples to pray, there is no singular pronouns. They're all plural. It's not just me and Jesus, in other words. It's us and Jesus. In other words, when, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, He's helping them understand the corporate nature of our prayer. Now, it doesn't mean that we can't pray individually. It doesn't mean that we can't bring our individual requests to God. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But what he is helping us to understand, what he wants to help us to, to practice more fully, is that, is that we need to realize that we are part of a family of God. We are part of the family of God. Unfortunately, however, oftentimes our prayers can be very self-serving or very just me, myself, and I. God, this is what I want you to do in my life. I don't care what you do in the rest of this church. I know I say that kind of blatantly, but, and we may not even think that consciously. But the pattern in our lives could, without even realizing it, be, wow, kind of narcissistic. In fact, some of the songs that we can sing, we've got to be careful the songs we choose to sing because some of the songs that we choose to sing can be very, God, it's all about me. If it was just me in the world, you would die for me. Well, maybe, maybe not. In other words, it's, it's about us. And the picture we get in Revelation, for example, you don't see any individual recognized except for the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. And everybody else is part of a collective family of God. So our Father, our Father who is in heaven, as David says in Psalm 97, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. What we see is that a proper understanding of who God is radically shapes what we pray 
as well as our attitude in our prayer, and even the way in which we approach God as Father. So we begin our prayer, God, this is who you are. This is how I relate to you. This is how you relate to me. And then we see that Jesus teaches us to really go into a series of petitions that, again, are not focused on us, but they're focused on God. The first petition, the first request is this. He says, hallowed be your name. That's the nice, that's the traditional way of saying it. A more literal translation of that is this. May your name be honored as holy. We don't use the word hallowed necessarily, but hallowed literally means to consider as holy or to make holy. Therefore, when we see that Jesus is, what Jesus is asking us, what he's teaching us to do and what he's modeling for his disciples is this, he's saying this, above all else, in the midst of everything you have going on in life, in the midst of all your concerns and all your priorities and all your ambitions and all your pursuits, this is the ultimate concern. Not just to Jesus, but also disciples of Jesus. It sort of kind of begs the question. IBC family, what is your ultimate concern in life? What is your ultimate ambition in life? What consumes your thoughts most prominently in your life? Do you live your life with the ultimate concern to make God's name holy? Not because it's not already holy, but you get to display his holiness to the world. Is your ultimate concern the glory and the holiness of God in and through your life? Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored as holy and glorious. May your kingdom come. Here's Jesus' Jesus's second petition. Not only does he, his ultimate concern, not only is Jesus' ultimate concern uh, the holiness and the glory of God, but we see that now, we see that Jesus says, now it's about your kingdom coming. As we've already learned early on in Matthew, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist taught this. Jesus said it at the outset of his ministry. He said, the kingdom has been inaugurated. The kingdom is here. A biblical worldview of life is understanding life in this way. There are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and there's the kingdom of man. There's the kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. I'm not pointing to this side of the church. (laughs) Don't read into that. There's two kingdoms. There's two realities. And you belong to one of two kingdoms. And what Jesus is helping his disciples understand, even us today, is that our ultimate ambition is not only the glory of God, but because of the glory of God, we desire that his kingdom not only be inaugurated, which it has through the coming of Christ, but that it would be fully established, that it would be fully realized 
In other words, as disciples of Jesus, our, our longing in this life is that God's kingdom be fully manifested here on earth. That we would no longer be consumed with the kingdom of man because the kingdom of man is really characterized by selfishness and godlessness and it's strife and it is also very temporary. But the kingdom of God, on the other hand, can be characterized by justice and mercy and righteousness and holiness and it's eternal. There's two kingdoms and the disciple of Jesus longs for the eternal kingdom of God. Your kingdom come and right on the heels of that, your will be done. Like there's two kingdoms, there's also two kinds of wills. There's God's sovereign will and there's God's revealed will. God's sovereign will is basically God accomplishes all that he does. What he wants to do, he will in fact do because he's sovereign. He's in absolute control of everything. But his revealed will is what he expects of us. It's what he desires of us. It's why he gives us commands. He reveals certain ways, certain expectations. The law is his revealed will so that we might live by it. In other words, what Jesus is actually praying here, what he's petitioning God to do is not only, God, would your kingdom come fully realized, but we desire that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven already. What is he getting at exactly? Well, we see that what Jesus is seeking to do in our hearts right now, each and every day, until he returns or until we go to him first, is he's transforming you. He's giving you a new heart. He's helping you be obedient from a new heart as it is already revealed in heaven. The angels in heaven already obey God perfectly. And now he's creating a human race that might obey God from a new heart. Not just something that we have to do, but something that we long to do. Because we realize and we've experienced firsthand that obedience to God's revealed will is a much better life. There is true freedom when we follow Christ and obey his commands. That's why Paul is able to State, state matter-of-factly in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ now lives in me. What Paul is explaining here and what Jesus is teaching us here is this. When I desire God's kingdom to be coming, to be fully realized and his will to be done, I'm acknowledging this. Life is no longer about me. Life is not marked and my happiness is not characterized by my will being done, but about God's will being done. Even Jesus himself modeled this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will be accomplished. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. Now we get to us. 
Second point is proper prayer recognizes our total dependence on God to provide everything we need in life. Give us this day our daily bread. I don't know about you, but I remember as a, as a kid, I would walk into some grandma's house or grand, grandma grandpa's house or just an old person's house, you know, and as a kid, I had this kind of idea. I know, Corey, you have like, you saw your grandma's picture of Jesus. It's crazy that she had a picture of Jesus. That's awesome. Um, but I always remember seeing this, give us this day our daily bread. It was always like kind of like bread, a loaf of bread with a kind of a cup of wine or something, and maybe there were some hands folded. You never saw the face of the person. And I, re- I remember going to camp, and we had some close family friends. They always had this on the wall, and this vivid picture of like, oh, give us this day our daily bread. What is Jesus even encouraging us? What is he teaching us by petitioning or asking God to give us our daily bread? What he's teaching us is is helping us recognize that everything we have, even in the most simple or mundane levels, is really from God. In other words, God just doesn't even just he doesn't just care about the big things like advancing his kingdom, but even cares about providing for the little things like your little needs, but important needs like food and water and clothing and shelter. It's recognizing the fact that everything that I have is from God because of God's grace in my life. Remember a few weeks ago, Katie asked, why do we pray every single meal? It's a good question. Because good Christians pray before every meal and it won't be blessed otherwise, right? No, no. Now we pray before every meal because it's an opportunity to acknowledge God's provision. And I love her prayer that is pretty consistent. Lord, thank you for this meal because there are many who do not have the opportunity to eat right now. The fact is, we get three square meals a day, maybe snacks even in between. We are very blessed We are richly blessed. And that's all of God. Not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. Proper prayer recognizes our total dependence on God. But proper prayer also, third point, recognizes our continual need for God's mercy and grace. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You know, there's this trend going on, and I'm not sure if I'm just kind of a late bloomer in recognizing this, but I keep hearing this more and more, and even just this past week, twice it came up through different people. But it's this phrase called self-care. Anybody like use the term or hear people talking about it? I'm not saying you have to do a show of hands, I'm just raising my own hand, I guess. This term self-care, the really the, the impetus or the, the, the emphasis behind self-care is basically this. You know, we, we need to have a, a better and healthier approach to life. And life is crazy and life is busy. And, and so we need to think uh, in a smart way about how to have a healthy rhythm in life. And on one hand, I wouldn't disagree at all. We ought to have a, a good, healthy, God-centered balance in the way we go about living our lives. There needs to be a healthy rhythm, which in for most of us, probably needs to say, start saying no 
to things so that we can say yes to the greater things. So I'm not against self-care, and I think we have a stewardship responsibility for our bodies and for our lives. But even though this conversation of self-care can be a healthy conversation, no pun intended, it doesn't pinpoint our greatest need. Because our greatest need in life is not self-care. Our greatest need in life is to be forgiven of our sin. Because where there is no forgiveness of sin, there is no promise of eternity. And there is no relationship with Father God. Jesus says this, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. What he is communicating is this, what he's teaching us is this, that the disciple of Jesus recognizes their continual need for God's mercy and grace, not because you have to kind of earn it again, not because you are not already experiencing it or under his mercy and grace, but we regularly, we daily recognize that we are dependent upon his mercy and grace. In other words, we have already been saved and we are continually being saved. We have already received the mercy and grace of God. We've been forgiven by God. We're already adopted into the family of God. But we also, as a result, recognize as we understand God more fully and understand who he is, we also realize how depraved we are, how utterly lost we are apart from him how much in need we are of his forgiveness in our life. That's why we, need to re- we really need to view forgiveness as an invitation by God. God doesn't, God doesn't say you need forgiveness, you need to ask for this, otherwise I'm not gonna love you anymore. He invites us to be forgiven so that we can be free once again. I think what's even more amazing about God's mercy and grace that we need every day is that God desires to give it. Isn't that crazy? It's not that we just need it, that's important, but the fact that God desires to give it. It's very possible that in our room here this morning, some of us might have this idea, we might be struggling to believe this lie that says, I have way too much sin. I've stopped asking for forgiveness because there's no way God could forgive me any longer or for the same thing over and again. May I encourage you with these words by the Puritan writer Richard Stibbs. He says, there's more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. This is what Paul teaches us. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more in Romans. Not that it gives us license to sin, but we realize that no matter how bad off we think we are and how bad off God knows we are, God has every desire and and he, he finds great joy in the opportunity to forgive us and therefore redeem us and make us whole. 
So the pattern of our prayer life ought to be a consistent pattern of, pattern of Lord, forgive me of my wrongdoings. Forgive me of my sin and help me to do so because in so doing, help me to be forgiving of others. I won't go into detail about this right now because time does not allow. We'll get to this later in Matthew chapter 18. But there's an interesting correlation between our reception of forgiveness and our forgiving of others. In other words, the reason why we forgive other people is because we have been forgiven. The reason why we, are show, we show grace and patience toward others is because that's exactly how God has related to us. The verse that I was encouraged to memorize from a very young age, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Why? Just as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We forgive, and we are patient, and we are gracious, and we are long-suffering, because that's exactly how God has loved us. Fourth and final point. Proper prayer recognizes our continual need for God's deliverance from temptation and evil. And do not bring us into temptation, Jesus says, but deliver us from the evil one. You know, one of the greatest services that you can do for yourself, among many things, maybe even your ritual getting out of bed routine, one of the greatest things you could probably do for yourself is this. Wake up each day recognizing that you are in a very real battle. It's amazing how oftentimes we go about life surprised when we are tempted or just shocked that we are struggling so much. I'm even convicted about it, saying it myself, because sometimes I'm taken out going, why is this happening? Of course this is happening. Why am I struggling? Of course I'm struggling. I'm in a battle. This, this idea of deliver us from evil is really the evil one. Satan has every intention of killing you and destroying you. The demonic realm does not like you. And even though it cannot change, even though Satan cannot change your relationship with God necessarily, he can't take your salvation, he can't make you become unadopted out of the family of God, he can sure make you an impotent, anemic, joyless Christian. And so we need to wake up every day fully aware that we're in a very real battle. As Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now, on one hand, we've we got to hold this somewhat in balance, because sometimes anything bad, at least in our mind, that happens to us, we might say, oh, that was Satan. Oh, that was Satan. Oh, that was Satan. Oh, that person cut me off? That was Satan. We start calling everybody Satan. (laughs) That's not what Jesus is getting at here. On the other hand, we may just not give any acknowledgement of the demonic realm at all. 
In other words, we've compartmentalized our religious life, so to speak, so much that we go, well, I'm just kind of oblivious. That's more of a fairy tale kind of thing. We see those in great fictional stories, but the whole thing about evil and the demonic realm being all around us, that, that simply just can't be true. There's no factual data about that. I need forensic evidence to support that. But Scripture teaches very clearly that the evil, the demonic realm is very real. The spiritual realm is very real. More real than the reality that we are cognitive of. And so there's a balance. I appreciate what C.S. Lewis says in his screw tape letters. If you have not read it, it's an interesting read. As far as it's about demon and protege demon having a conversation about Christians and the enemy, which is God in this case. In it, C.S. Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an existence, an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So yes, wake up each day knowing that we are in a very real battle, but realize that not every rock turned over is of Satan himself. He is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. It is an interesting thing when Jesus says, do not lead us or do not bring us in temptation, it might we kind of ask the question, does God actually tempt us? Would God actually do that? And the simple answer is no. As we read in James chapter one, let no one say when he is tempted, I mean tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And when desire when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God does not tempt anyone. What Jesus is seeking to help us understand more clearly is this. We are in a battle. We need to understand our vulnerability in the battle. We are in this life but we need to be honest with ourselves about those things that potentially trip us up. Looking at Jake here, we've had a few different adventures together. I don't think there's a, ever been a trip in which somebody at some point in time hasn't uh, been distracted by the amazing beauty of creation in the Olympics and at the same time not realizing there's a gnarly root or something catching our feet, grabbing it, and helping us prove gravity. But the fact is, in the midst of going about life, there are many things that can trip us up, that can make us fall. When I worked on the pipeline, I loved the pipeline for many reasons. I loved especially that I got to kind of take a break from studies and I loved to just be out in God's creation, multiple mountain ranges, hiking all the time. I loved it. But one thing I learned very quickly on the pipeline was even in the midst of God's great creation and so many beautiful things to experience, 
there was also some very real dangers too. One particular summer, I had two encounters with grizzlies and, and a wolf. And uh, not to get lost in the details of that, but it did remind me that in the midst of these, in God's beautiful creation, that there are some very real dangers. I remember one time I was picking up all our little wire that we had strung out, and we had to park a truck about a mile away. And I had to cross the stream multiple times to pick up all our wire to kind of clean up our survey. And, and in so doing, I'm like, hey, you know, my truck partner say, you, you go up ahead, and then I'll meet you on the other side. And I'm out by myself. And, of course, being in the pipeline, you don't get guns. You just get the, the dinner bell, you know, to, uh, to warn everybody or to invite the bears to say, hey, food is this way. So I take the bell off because it's ridiculous. And I'm just cruising around like, this is so great. And then all of a sudden, I hear this howling. And I'm like, huh, okay, we're in the Brooks range, you know, it's some bulls off in the distance. And then I see the bulls actually coming down, and the alpha male comes right across the stream from me. And of course, I break the line, and I pick up a rock as if that's going to do anything. And I just stand there, and it just paces back and forth. And I'm wondering to myself, what's going to happen? How does this play out? And thankfully, it tears off and, and goes back. And I see five bulls come and run up the hill, and there's a big bull moose on the side of the mountain. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and I quickly pick up the wire, you know, and I don't waste time not getting my feet wet in the stream. Life is full of great blessing. There are many things to be enjoyed in life. We have so many reasons to give thanks in this life, but brothers and sisters, realize that you also have a very formidable enemy who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And we need to pray fervently and consistently that God would help us in our vulnerability. Not to be more than conquerors, but to fully to understand that our only hope and grace in this life is God's supernatural intervention. Our only ability to not be tripped up with all kinds of opportunity of compromise is the grace and the mercy of God. I'll close in this way. James exhorts us in James chapter 4 verse 7 He says, humble yourself, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What's interesting is the order of this progression. We are called to resist the devil, and and we are promised that he will flee from us, but the way in which you and I are called to resist the devil is not by our own power. It's not by our own strength. It's not by our own ability. It's not by our own determination. It's not by our own self-control. It's not by our own boundaries and, and protective barriers that we put up in life. Our ultimate hope is that we would submit ourselves to God. And in so doing, as a result, we are empowered to resist the evil one. So brothers and sisters, when you pray next, I pray that you would be 
that this prayer that Jesus teaches us would inform how you approach God, the manner in which you approach God, the attitude in which you approach God, the content of what your prayer includes, remembering that prayer begins with God, not you. Because when you acknowledge God for who he is and therefore in turn submit to his will, then you are in the right mindset to ask anything and he will give it to you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so very grateful for how loving and benevolent and gracious and mercy you've been to us. We even acknowledge right now, Father, as a church family, that even though we may not have woken up with this uh, desire, we acknowledge right now that our ultimate desire, Lord, is that your name be glorified in and through our lives. That we would be able to make much of you through our lives. That your kingdom would be that much more established and realized that your will would be accomplished in general, but also individually or specifically through us. We acknowledge the fact that, God, life is not about us at all. It is always about you. And our greatest joy and our greatest satisfaction, our greatest fulfillment, the freedom we so long desire to experience every day is when we submit ourselves to your will. Help us to believe that more fully. We do ask that you would provide for us as you promised to do. Help us to never take for granted the things that you've given to us, knowing that every good thing comes from above. Thank you for your continual forgiveness of us, Lord even though we might have come into our church service this morning having sinned and said and done things that were not of you, we ask that you would forgive us so that we can be made right with you. I pray, Lord, for any of us that are harboring bitterness or anger or resentment toward another person, May we be free of that even now. And Lord, we do ask that you would protect us from the evil one. We know that we are vulnerable, that we are weak, we are frail, and we are desperately dependent on you. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.